Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. On this episode of the Football Collective Podcast, I'm joined by Steve Minery to discuss his research on pre-season and the new emergence of commercialisation within the pre-season schedule and what the future could be for these non-competitive games that seem to go unnoticed every year but generate such large amounts of money for teams in the Premier League and Europe's top five leagues. So Steve, can you tell us a little bit um, about yourself, um, your writing and I'm especially interested to hear about this uh, CIES scholarship that you're on uh, which has also led to the theme of the podcast today and can you tell us a bit about how you came to join in the collective? Uh, well, I'm a freelance journalist, and I've been for since uh, I think 2001. I was a business reporter on the Scotsman before that, and um, yeah, I probably started writing about football about 2005. So that started writing for World Soccer, and when Saturday comes a bit as well, and kind of came into it from the business angle really. And um, I wrote something about friendlies generally for World Soccer. 2015 I think really and I kind of when I did that I saw this was an area that you know was kind of forgotten about really you know there's no sort of supervision you know if you turned up to the games you know you could when you're a journalist access is is a big thing you know you if you want to speak to a player then you know they ask you for the questions in advance and you've got to mention what what watch they're wearing and all that rubbish and uh, when you go to these friendlies there's just all these players sat there and you know there's a kind of an access that you wouldn't otherwise get and I thought this is quite interesting and so I wrote, I did something, I was teaching a bit at Solent at the time, and I did a bit, an academic piece for a journal. And then I used those two articles to apply for this scholarship. I found out about the CIS scholarship. It was called the Havilland Scholarship at the time. I found out about that a couple of friends, or one friend in particular, Max, who's also a member of the collective, I think Max Morrow, an Italian guy who works over here. And he told me about it, and I thought, this looks really interesting. So I applied for it. I had no real expectations. You know, I'm not a a full-time academic or anything like that, although I've done some teaching at, at Winchester as well. Um, I applied and, and then, you know, amazingly I got it. There's, there's not much, you, know, you can't find out much about this scholarships really. They're not so very well advertised, but I, I got it. And then 2017, I spent, you know, that, that year researching, you know, the whole business of friendlies from, you know, the globalisation, the history, the globalisation, that kind of thing. And, um, then it got published as a book start this year, so by CIS. So you know, I was very appreciative of that opportunity to do it. Really, it was uh, it was very good. So um, before we get onto the uh, serious discussion, if you must, um, can we talk about the Ali Dia research that you <laughs> took? Yeah. Uh, it is one of the funniest and strangest stories that, to take place in football, and it, it kind of does not Graham Sunis's credibility when he he slags off Pogba for everything he does on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Yes, that was, I got asked to do that piece by uh, Bleacher Report and it was, uh, so I was just trying to kind of look at, you know, where he'd come from, because a lot of it, you know, he's at Saints and all that kind of thing, and a few things I kind, of, kind of touched on, so I managed to track down people like Jim Platt, who was his manager after he left Saints, it's brief spell there, he was his manager at Gateshead and some people in Finland who'd had some dealings with him and, you know, he's, he's a very sort of mercurial character and uh, an American lady followed up my story, did a sort of second part because I wasn't able to do that. Uh, she made a very good job of that as well. But it's it, very difficult to pin down sort of exactly who he was, you know. I mean, he, he was a great chancer in a way, really. And, uh, you know, and when people would say, you know, you're not very good, I think Jim Platt gives an uh, example in the, 
the article that I wrote, that he, he put him on as sub and then took him off again a few minutes later. And in most kinds of football, even if you're playing on a Sunday morning, you know, that's the ultimate, you know, <laughs> that's the ultimate low. And he said, we well, didn't care. You know, he was like, I've got, I've got on from Gateshead, you know. And, and it, so it was, uh, you, know, you know, it's a shame I never got, I'd love to have spoken to him really, but it was a, an interesting guy who I think kind of exposed a few, a few of football's weaknesses along the way, really. I don't think that was his intention, but, but he did, you know, so it was quite entertaining, I think. It is a it is a brilliant story. So we'll get on to uh, the serious stuff now, if if, uh, if you like. Um, the book that you sent me over to read this week, I've really been enjoyed reading. Um, a friendly business, I think you've called it. Um, it's been it's been quite an interesting read, talking about the uh, the concept of the preseason friendly and preseason in general. So, in in your opinion, what is the current state of preseason now, and is it as important as these teams like to claim it is for finding the feet and gelling um, as a team? With an average sub of every six minutes was one of the, uh, the piece of research you sent me within some of these games. Can clubs really claim that they, uh, they're using it for their benefit? Well, I think there's a kind of two differences, aren't there? There's the, there's the games where they're using them, they're going on a training camp and they're, and they're trying to gel the team and, and the, the match is the important thing, you know, the, the building the team is the important thing. Then there's the other side, which I think is the exhibition games, which is where there's all these subs. You know, and they're kind of, like Harlem Globetrotters type thing, that's a kind of what they're, you know, what they're seen as a kind of a, an exhibition. And it's a big way for the Cubs to, you know, increase the TV rights. And so I think there's, there's, there's two very different, pre-season's kind of got two very different uses and the, the big six in the Premier League are certainly using it to, to, to sell themselves and their brands abroad and the other clubs where, you know, obviously the brand's part of it, but more important perhaps is to have a decent team that gels at the start of the Premier League and doesn't get relegated. So... It's two different things, I think. So when we're talking about the um, the links between media there, do we think that there's a, a big link between the media and pre-season now? There's obviously uh, the Audi Cup that Bayern Munich run, the Emirates one that Arsenal run, so there's the, the links there with commercial sponsors. But to what extent, if any, does the media have now on, on the pre-season schedule? Well, I think it's forgotten. You know, if the World Cup's on, then who you know, or a big tournament played in 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 our in the British, European summertime. Um, I don't think preseason barely gets a notice. But when there isn't um, a, a big tournament, then you know it becomes a, a cheap way of showing football the rights that are going to be a, a fraction uh, of the price for any of those kind of sort of branded tournaments. And so they'll manufacture a tournament, they'll put a sponsor in, a naming sponsor, and it'll become the Audi Cup or whatever, and to try and give it some more importance. And then they'll. So, so that they'll certainly, you know, that'll get picked up more by the media uh, outside of a, of, a, of a World Cup year or a European Championship year. So, like, like we're going to have this summer, I guess there'll be more focus on friendlies this summer than there would have been last year. So, another one of the uh, the things that you sent me over that was I found quite interesting was um, about the big six abandoning the UK. Um, quite emotive, like words used there. Um, but it does seem to be that kind of abandoning their own fans that are quite loyal through the season and will be loyal throughout the the tough the tough parts of the season maybe for the team um, and especially between 2008 to 2017 just 15 percent of pre-season games played by the big six were in the UK with uh, Man United only playing four in ten. But why is this? Is it is it is it all to do with the money? Is it to do with commercial growth? Well, I, I think that figure, actually the, the amount of games played in the UK was actually was a, was twenty seven percent over that ten year period. But the amount of games played in the UK against British teams was was lower again. So, but I think that you know those six they see that as a chance 
you know, that used to be pre-season was a time where, you know, you try not to spend too much money and you go on a tour, etc. Now they see this as a way of going places and, uh, you know, and attracting big crowds and uh, improving their brand and, and getting, you know, a decent amount of money for this. I mean, I think the Bayern Munich tour was a couple of years ago to Asia. The story is that they got like $10 million for that. So, you know, there's quite a lot of money and a chance to to grow their brand. And I think certainly from the, the, the big six in, in the Premier League, you know, they, they can't really pass that up. It's very hard. If they stayed at home, then they'd be losing out in market share abroad. So, so kind of in their defence, that's kind of what they they have to do. But, yeah, certainly there's some of them that have played, you know, hardly any games. I think Man United have played, um, I think over that period of time, played 63 uh, friendlies and only 11 were in the UK. And only seven of them were against British teams. So, so there's, that's the kind of, yeah, that's probably an extreme end of it. But... I think that's something that they have to do, really, from a commercial point of view. You know, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I think that's, you know, the, the way the game's going and the, the way that TV rights are going. They've plateaued in this country uh, are in, and they're growing abroad. So they need to go abroad and they're kind of like ambassadors, I think, really, for growing those TV rights. And that's why they want a bigger share of them, because they're the ones doing all the hard work. So the teams from the UK are not playing against the other teams from the UK. And... Um... Well, another another thing that... not not so often. I mean, it used to be at one point Arsenal had an agreement where they play one of the first pre-season games would be against Barnet. There, that was the sort of agreement the club had, and that's you know that's kind of fallen by the wayside. And these kind of games that they would, they would you know, I mean, I'm a Bournemouth fan, and their first game for a long period of time in pre-season was always against a local team called Ringwood. You know, and that's fallen away now. And those sort of things, you know, it's if you're going to play a game at home. You know, there's it's got to have some kind of value to it. I think for for a lot of the Premier League teams, you know, and if they can't see a value to it, you know, that they're not going to play. You know, it might be great for one Premier League team to invite a team from League Two to play at their home ground, but it wouldn't be much value in that. No one would go to it, and so therefore they've got to look at other ways of making those things stack up. I think. Is that what that's about? Then creating value, creating a better, a better spectacle, and also creating a bit, bit more of a test for the team. Um, so you said that clubs from Germany play most. Um, mostly against the UK teams. Is that because the Bundesliga offers the highest level of competition or is there another link between the commercial partners of these clubs? No, I think you're, I think you're right. I mean, Europe's is the most, most games played by the Premier League are played against European teams, against countries from Europe. But as a country, they, they tend to go to America, but not necessarily play against American teams. You know, So they are looking for you know, a spectacle, but also a decent a decent um, quality opposition. You know, there's been quite a lot of visits to China and very few games against Chinese teams because, you know, the standard's not really there. Whereas the Germans, you know, you're getting a good standard uh, opposition to, you know, regardless of which team in the Bundesliga you're playing. You know, top, middle or bottom, they're all quite a good standard. And that's why I think, yeah, you know, you want to see that game. If you're if a team in the Premier League's going to play a home match and they're going to charge X amount for it, then it needs to be against a team that perhaps people haven't seen before or won't have a chance to see. So, with the uh, the shift towards America and the, the big attendances that we're getting in pre-season, um, how long do you think the MLS will want this to keep going, or do you think this, they'll, they'll see this as a, a strength for their competition, or are they losing out on fans to the Premier League that might be shifted away from the MLS towards the Premier League? Well, I think it's the whole <clears throat> sort of you know the, the globalization. A lot of it is based. Or predicated on this idea that people support more than one team. As I remember going, as the lady who did the marketing for MLS a few years ago, I was at Soccerex, and she used that phrase, you know, rising tides floats all boats. So they're kind of taking the view that if these foreign teams turn up to America and play some pre-season games, that's improving people's, you know, 
a recognition of football or soccer as a game. But I wonder, you know, how long are the MLS teams going to say, well, actually, do you know what? We don't really want to share our fans with, with Real Madrid or Man United, actually. We'd sooner they were just our fans, because ultimately, if they're splitting their loyalties, they're also splitting, you know, the money they spend. And so I, and I wonder how long that will go on. And obviously, there's a quite a protectionist government in America at the moment. I think it would be a, a, a way of saying it. And uh, so I wonder, I, I don't know, but I wonder how long that will go on, that, that they want to, will people always want to support two teams? You know, I think, you know, in, in our country, that's, you know, you might have another team that you're sympathetic towards, but, you know, you, you, you're going to be, you know, I'm, an, I'm a Bournemouth fan, I don't mind admitting that. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't like Saints to go down, but ultimately I'm still a Bournemouth fan, you know, and that's, and but that's that's part of our history and part of uh, the culture of football in this country. It differs in other countries. Do you think that it's also a big opportunity for these clubs to make a bit of money? Um, the ticket prices for these games are sometimes huge, 520 quid in some cases, for the uh, El Clasico, I think it was in in Miami. Um, is this because it's such a sport living nation that uh, Americans are willing to part with that money because it's such a rare occasion to see these teams, even if it's going to be lads with numbers like forty seven on the back that they've probably never heard of? Yeah, I, I think that's you know that was only the I think the El Clasico. Had, uh, I thought it had been played um, abroad. That was the first time, but apparently it was played in Colombia. I think in the eighties, so it had been played abroad once before prior to that. Someone uh, put me right on that. Um, but you know that, that was a complete one-off having that game played there. But you know some of the you know some of the prices for tickets were incredible. But you know there's still an awful lot of people went to that game, and you know I know an American guy who went to it and didn't didn't see it as a you know as a problem uh, as such, you know, but it seemed an all, to me an awful lot of money to pay for a, a game where people are coming on, on and off an awful lot. And, but, you know, I mean, maybe that's just me or maybe that's just a, a kind of typically sort of British view. I'm, I'm not sure, but. So um, the Premier League play more pre-season games than uh, any of the other five big European leagues. But why is this? Well, it's, I think it's, it's, again, it's, it's the commercial side, isn't it? They've been very much aware to, aware of the fact that, you know, they need to grow the game, game abroad. They've been very good at doing that. You know, as whatever you think about the Premier League, you know, they've been very successful at doing that as driving up the pre, of the TV rights. And so, you know, that that's part of it. That's why they're good at it. La Liga is sort of, you know, hot on their heels and the other, other three leagues are, are lesser so probably, you know, the French, the Italians, Germans, maybe the third, you know, in terms of globalising the game, that's what they do. So, they, you know, they've clicked onto that. They've clicked onto the fact they can go to places and they can go and have a pre-season on a tour. And, and make some money out of it. And that's, uh, you know, the Premier League clicked onto that a few years ago. And I think the others are sort of slowly following that. But I think some of those teams, you know, if you're a mid-table team from France, you're not going to be able to go to China and say, I want X amount of money to play this exhibition game because the, the money isn't there. It's probably only there for the sort of 20 or so biggest clubs in Europe, of which the Premier League are, have got a large amount. So um, you, you call this, these games between Premier League clubs abroad uh, the Shadow Premier League. But what do you mean by the Shadow Premier League? And do you think this draws any parallels uh, to the direction of the proposed European Super League that we're, uh, we've been discussing and it's been in the media and people, <clears throat> it's up in the air? Is there any parallels to that? Well, I think I'm not called it the Shadow Premier League because, you know, they come up with game 39, they've got roundly slaughtered. Has that been a bad idea? Um, the Spanish have looked at it and the people... Uh, that helping the Spaniards do that, I believe, relevant are the same ones that are playing the international, plays the International Champions Cup friendly tournament in America. So that, and they're also the same ones that, although they've denied it, have been linked with a, a Super League and relevant have said that that's not the case. But anyway, um, so 
I called it the Shadow Premier League, really, because, you know, it, it, it's almost like a game 39. It's almost like they've said, right, we're going to stage game 39 abroad. Everyone said, no, no, you can't do that. It's actually dreadful. So they said, OK, publicly, right, we won't do that. And then they've kind of, in a way, gone ahead, gone away and done it in pre-season anyway. So, and it's you know, there's all those games that have gone on over the years. The last um, Asia Premier League trophy, there was no local teams in it. Now, there were some practical reasons for that, but that kind of sort of, you know, that occurred uh, almost unnoticed. The tickets sold out very quickly, so it certainly wasn't a, a bad decision on a commercial level. But, but there was no no effort to, you know, the, 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 whether any Asian teams will turn to the Asia Premier League trophy again in the future, I don't know, because now they've gone to an all-Premier League affair. And uh, so, they, you know, they're playing these games. When the Premier League started in 1992, the idea of two English teams going to play a game abroad in a neutral venue, it didn't happen or hardly ever happened. It was, a, you know, whereas now that's quite a regular occurrence that the English teams will play each other abroad in, Premier, in, in pre-season. So that, that, is your, that is your almost like your game 39, but it's not a game 39. It's a, played in a different format. The closest example I can think to that is the recent... Um, Sort of uproar in La Liga with um, some some Spanish teams refusing to play games abroad, saying it would it would damage the competition. But how long do you think it is before the sort of Middle East and all the Chinese owners that have got control of these clubs and are pumping millions and millions of, of pounds into the clubs in the Premier League? How long do you think it'll be before some of the games may be played over in in China or in Qatar or in in Dubai, for instance? Well, I think you know the weather is going to make it impossible to play any games in in what we know as, as our pre-season. But the Premier League now has agreed to have this kind of staggered break. As they said that they won't use it to go and play pre-season games. Well, of course they would say that to start with, but let's see in five years' time if this mid-season break, which I think is probably a very good idea for the players, if during that period of time that someone will probably will have played a game. And once one club's done it, then, of course, another club will do it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that that period of time, uh, you know, uh, the, the mid-season break is used to play a game. There's also there's, there's what we call charity shields, you know, Super Cup in other countries. You know, some of the places like the Italians, you know, they took it to Libya and places like this. So they, they were the ones that sort of blazed the way with that in the 90s before the British club, the English clubs had even thought of that. Um, so I think, you know, the... the yeah, the owners almost certainly, you know, maybe there'll be some pressure, I don't know, to take the charity shield abroad. I mean, I think you would struggle to play it in the, in the Middle East because of the weather, but hence that's why the mid-season break's an idea. But, you know, I, the, the, sure, there must surely be some pressure there for that to do that. And I'm sure there's people within clubs that are trying to resist it. But, um, you know, whoever owns the club is ultimately going to get their own way, aren't they? So that brings me on uh, nicely to the final question I've got for you. We're talking about the mid-season break which is set to become a feature of the season due to the uh, change in, in, the, in the dates for the Qatar World Cup due to climate. Um, funnily enough, around this time of year uh, from next season, um, do you think we'll see more large-scale exhibitions during this, uh, this break? Because the other European leagues, such as Germany and uh, in other countries like France, they have that Christmas break uh, where England don't. Do you think that they'll try and merge these together and then try and get these big large-scale exhibitions on? Well, I suppose all the leagues would have to standardise uh, their their break in order for that to happen and to and to feature clubs from other countries. They'd have to standardise the break and say, well, actually, we'll all have a break at X amount of time. As as it is now, you know, those breaks are, you know, some of the the Eastern European clubs, you know, some of them play in the summer. The Irish play in the summer, but so do some of the Eastern European clubs. The Georgians are switched to uh, to playing in summer, that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the winter time. It's a different, you know, it's a different time for those clubs. So I mean, I, th- I think certainly that that might happen. But 
whether it will happen, you know, I think if English clubs are off at the same time, they can go somewhere and play each other. And that, but that time might not be the same exactly the same time as the other European leagues, which might make it. So hence, I think that will be why the pre-season we've got at the moment, the International Champions Cup is the most successful example. That's why that's, you know, that's what they're doing it that way, really. Um, thank you very much for your time, Steve. I've, um, I've really enjoyed having you on. I've really enjoyed your book. Um, Steve's book, A Friendly Business, um, it's a really interesting read. If anyone can manage to get hold of that, I'd, I'd give it a read. Um, so thanks once again, Steve. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on.